0: Vasudeva Sutam Devam, Kamsachano Ramadanam, Devaki Paramanandam, Krishnam Vande Jagad So In the Bhagavad Gita, we are studying chapter six. This chapter is on meditation. We were on verse number 23. And uh, in the last few verses, Sri Krishna has given us us. certain valuable insights. Uh, These are profound, each of them are profound insights into Vedanta and into Vedantic meditation. What are these? I will quickly recapitulate to set the stage for today's class. So verse number 20. What are these insights which uh, Krishna just, uh, he just told us. In verse number 20, um, Sri Krishna said, Yatra uparamate chittam niruddham yoga sevaya. So one of the characteristics of Vedantic meditation is chitta nirodha. Uh, It is the cessation of mental activity or the, the, the cessation of the modifications of the mind. So this is classic Patanjali yoga. Um, in Patanjali yoga, the practice is to is yoga's chitta vritti nirodhaha. The mind is constantly being transformed into various modifications. Ripples are coming up on the surface of the lake of the mind. So to calm it down, um, to make it one-pointed, not to put it to sleep. There's a difference between going to sleep and becoming one-pointed. So to make it one-pointed, uh, not to make it Continuously transform into various vrittis or modifications. One pointed in what? To make it one pointed in the self, the Atman. I am Satchidananda. This should be the focus. In a more broader sense, it could be also the devotional meditation that many of us practice, where we have an Ishta Devata, the Chosen deity, and we visualize it and keep it one pointed in that. So, each successive modification of the mind is about the object of meditation, not about different things, which is the normal state of the mind. So, this is the first characteristic. This is the characteristic of meditation, and it's Vedantic meditation when the object of meditation is the subject itself, my real, my own reality, the Atman. And then It says, Yatra Jayva Atmana Atmanam Pashyam Atmani The second characteristic is, what is going on in uh, Vedantic meditation is that I recognize that I am this witness consciousness. All thoughts are lit up by that one consciousness, that one awareness. When I see, hear, smell, taste, touch, all throughout, I am aware. That awareness is shining when I think, I remember, desire, love, hate, um, imagine, um, understand, forget, all confusion, all of these mental, internal mental modifications, all throughout, I am aware. So the focus is on the awareness. It's, It's, let us say, awareness of awareness. So there is awareness, choicelessly, continuously, shining through. Remember, you're not becoming awareness, or you're not switching on the awareness or consciousness, it's always shining. It is the nature of the self, the Atman itself. But the mind is now drawing, is attending to it, the nature of awareness. And this is tushyati. It is happy there. It is satisfied there. It is settled there. Uh, it um, It is fulfilled there. Normally, the mind moves into various modifications because it is attracted to this and that. Driving it all is the search for happiness or fulfillment. Now it finds fulfillment in the nature of of itself, of of, uh, Atman. Why would it be fulfilling? So I am awareness. Something like light illumining everything. So why would it be fulfilling? I mean, why would I not want um, cookies and, um, you know, nice sunsets, the company of friends, uh, a nice book to read. So why would I not seek fulfillment in all of that? It's because I realize that this Atman, this awareness which I am, is without limit. It is the reality. Um, There is no lack there. It is infinite in nature. That's one. Second, I also realize every other thing which attracts me outwards, away from the self is an appearance in the self itself. It's nothing other than the self. In reality, it is the self. It is appearing as an other. And as the other, as the cookie, as the nice sunset, as the book, they are all appearances. They are not real in themselves. All right. They may not be real in themselves, but can't they be satisfying? Only temporarily, only in a superficial sense. None of them, because they are not real, Because they are not unlimited. Uh, They are all limited. And therefore, whatever little uh, pleasure, little satisfaction they can provide will be temporary. It will come, it will go. It will not fulfill you. It will not fulfill us. It will not be permanent. It will not be deep. It will not be profound. It will just leave a trace and will lead to further desires later on but none of it will be deeply deeply satisfying. And the metaphysical reason, philosophical reason for that is those things in which we are looking for satisfaction, they are limited. They cannot give us lasting satisfaction. They are only appearances of the reality which we already are. Anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying what Sri Krishna said. In deep meditation, when you are aware of awareness, your mind is settled in the Atman, in its nature as Satchidananda. Chidananda, Rupa, Shivoham. I am of the nature of consciousness, I am of the nature of bliss or fulfillment, I am Shiva. When settled there, you, you are also satisfied and fulfilled there. Then the next characteristic he points out is in verse 21. Sukham The nature of happiness, where it there it enjoys um, the ultimate happiness, sukham atyantikam. And how, how does it enjoy buddhigrahyam? It, it is, that happiness is available through knowledge. Now, what kind of happiness is available to us? One is the worldly kind of happiness we are used to, which is born of sense contact. something that you see, hear, smell, taste, touch, or imagine, or expect. Even expectation leads to happiness an expectation of a pleasure. So you're you're expecting your friend's visit. You're expecting on these COVID days, you're expecting to take a vacation and a trip. So that expectation itself generates pleasure. So expectation, the actual sense contact, expectation of the sense contact, imagination, um, memory, all of these can generate pleasure. So these are all the kinds of pleasures we are aware of. From the grossest, um, crudest pleasure of, say, uh, some nice food, to refine pleasures, you know, art and, and literature and all of that. Higher than this, uh, much more subtle, much more refined than this, is the joy of spirituality. And, uh, Krishna is not even talking of that, but it's the joy of spirituality, where the joy of the self, or the, or you can say the joy of, of divinity, divine presence, It's born of meditation, it's born of bhakti, it's born of loving service to the divinity. In various ways, an extraordinary happiness, a very pure kind of happiness comes, which is unlike the first kind I talked about. The external and internal pleasures which we are familiar with in the world, purer than this, much more lasting, much more satisfying, much more nourishing than the worldly pleasures are the joys of, um, of spirituality the joy of um, loving service to God, the joy of uh, uh, the devotional, the feeling the presence of God, of loving God, the joy of prayer, uh, the joy of renunciation. Shankaracharya sings, uh, renunciation, dispassion, to whom does it not give joy? You know, enjoying something is gives some pleasure, letting go of that. I do not want it. That gives even greater happiness, freedom and lightness. So that is the second kind of joy, which is the spiritual joy. And the extreme forms of that would be the mystical experiences, the feeling of the presence of God, actual mystical visions of God. So when Sri Ramakrishna would have visions of um, of the Divine Mother, Kali of Krishna, of the different forms of God, every hair would stand on end with the thrill of it. You can, you cannot imagine um, the incredible fulfillment, happiness, the, the, the unimaginable joy of, of actually experiencing God. That's the higher kind. And the final kind is the Atman itself, which is joy itself. It's not a kind of joy, not even a mystical joy, not even a spiritual joy, but it is Fulfillment itself, it is infinity itself. It is fulfillment because it is infinity. You are without limit. There is no second reality apart from you. This knowledge when it dawns, it is the highest fulfillment. It is the highest joy in itself. So three kinds of joy. One is Vishayananda, the joy of Vishaya, object in the world. It is a worldly kind of joy. Bhajanananda, the joy of spiritual practice. It can culminate in visions, mystical visions. Extraordinary joy. Uh, And then Brahmananda, which is Ananda, which is the nature of the Atman itself. So here, Sri Krishna is talking about second and third. By meditation, you get great joy. There is no doubt about it. So not just at the culmination, he is talking here about Samadhi, but not just in Samadhi. Even before that, when meditation goes well, it is initially a struggle, but the moments it goes well, it is, it is very profound and it's very deep. It's, um, sometimes it's unforgettable. It's very deep and very moving. That is the joy of meditation. And finally, uh, what he's talking about, Atmananda or Brahmananda, the self which is Ananda itself. Sukham atyantikam Buddhi This is beyond the senses. It's not a sensory joy. So it's a spiritual joy, bhajanananda. Not even that, because he says, Buddhi it is born of knowledge. What knowledge? Aham Brahmasmi. Not born of a mystical experience. So, the joy of worldly experiences, the joy of spiritual or mystical experiences, and finally, the joy of enlightenment, Brahman and the full enlightenment. I am that reality. All right. That's the next insight he has given. Another insight he says, very interesting. He says, once attaining to this, one can never lose it again. One is firmly established in this. What does it mean? So even um, the best of meditation, in the initial stages is difficult to attain calmness of mind. But one may attain uh, deep samadhi. And then one can stay in that for a long period of time. But beyond that, it still goes away. Samadhi also comes and goes. It can be developed, cultivated, attained. And then you can come out of it. Um, In fact, you better come out of it. If you stay there long enough, the body will die. So, if you want to continue living as an enlightened being, you come out of it. So, that means even samadhi, the state attained through samadhi, is attained and lost. It arises and then disappears again. And can arise again also. Which means it is not... um, that it is not lost, that's not true. It is lost, even the highest experiences. Even Sri Ramakrishna's extraordinary visions of the Divine Mother and other deities. But notice one thing. They came and they went. There was a before, there was a during, and there was an after. But here Krishna says, once this is attained, it's not lost. What does it mean? It means it's not really attained also. It is ever attained, we we just get the realization of that that I am Brahman, I am of the nature of Shiva. When Shankaracharya sings, shivoham, I am of the nature of consciousness, I am of the nature of bliss, I am Shiva, it's not that I have become Shiva now. He realizes one's innate, ever-existing Shiva nature. So all this sounds very mystical and mysterious also. Not mystical, mysterious. You are aware of it right now. It is that same awareness by which you are seeing and hearing. You're looking at the computer screen, you're hearing the sound, same awareness, you're aware. You might say, but that awareness does not seem very extraordinary. It is. It is the famous washerman stone, uh, which Sriram Krishna talked about. The washerman who thought he had a stone, strange stone with which he used to scrub clothes, finally discovered it was a big diamond. When he discovered what it was, it was uh, enough to, you know, by selling it, he, could, he had enough money to remove all his poverty. You know the story I am referring to. I have mentioned it a number of times. So, this awareness which you are experiencing right now, it is the washerman's Stone. You have it. We don't know what it is. Vedanta just introduces us to our own glory. So, attaining which it is never lost means it can never be lost. The clay pot can never be anything other than clay. The golden ornament can, can, cannot be anything other than gold. It can be, a bracelet can be melted and crafted into a necklace. A necklace can be melted and fashioned into a ring. But all throughout, necklace, bracelet, ring, uh, in the melted condition, whatever condition it is, it is gold. It is gold. That's choiceless. It can't be anything else. Having realized its gold status, it's never lost. What what it means, is it always was gold. Now, if the necklace did not know it was gold, it always thought it was a necklace. Now it realizes my real nature is gold. My necklace status is incidental. It depends on a particular name, a particular form, a particular function. It looks like this. It's called a necklace and you put it on your neck. These are just incidental. But the reality throughout is this gold. Similarly, the reality throughout is you, the awareness, you, the existence. Then the next point he makes, uh, Krishna makes, is Yam labham nadhikam tata. There's nothing greater than this. It may not seem so. so. God realization seems to be an amazing thing. To be rich seems to be amazing. To be learned seems to be amazing. To be young and healthy seems to be amazing, especially if you're old and sick. Um, but to go to heaven seems to be amazing for people who believed in heaven at one time. That was the goal. But um, this, he says, this is greater than all of that, far greater. Having attained to which, nothing greater remains. Every other kind of joy, every other kind of of, uh, happiness, fulfillment is limited in time. It has a beginning, it has an end. It is limited in space. It is here and not not there. And it is in one person, it is not in the other person. And it is limited in object. It is something other than you. That's why it came to you and goes away from you. Whereas this one is not limited by time, space and object. Once you recognize it, you realize it was there forever and it will be there forever. It will be there everywhere and it is nothing other than you. Every other joy depends on Sattva Rajasthamas. This is the one thing that you are the joy that is your very self, which does not depend on sattva rajas and tamas, which does not depend on maya. Not only that, every other joy, every other fulfillment that we have in the world is actually a manifestation of this one. It is the ocean. Shankaracharya says in his commentary on the Taittiriya Upanishad uh, Brahmananda Valli, one place he says, All the joys of the world which for which men are mad after are but spray from the ocean, the endless ocean of bliss which lies within each of us. Just spray from that and we look at, see it outside and chase it. But the whole ocean is you. So nothing greater than this is to be attained. Then the next insight he gives is, this one helps us to overcome all suffering. Yasmin, stheto na This is verse number 22. Twenty-two, yeah. Being established in which even the most uh, greatest of sorrows will not shake you. Notice, this means the sorrows will keep coming. So, it's not that now I will not get old. I become enlightened. I will still get old. I told you about that interview in the, uh, his, uh, History Channel. I think History Channel. They wanted to know about immortality through yoga. And so William Shatner is the host, and he went to space yesterday day for yesterday. This is a very short space trip. I think eleven minutes or something. But anyway, and he was so overcome by it. If you see the statement he made, he said it felt like I realized that this Earth is life itself, and the blackness of space is like death. We must learn to preserve this life. But he's practically immortal himself. He's ninety-eight years old. Um, So, old age will come, disease will come, there will be problems in the world, COVID will come, difficult people will continue to be there, all problems will come. But on the power of this, this realization of, of our real nature, when this becomes a living reality, one can withstand, one can transcend sorrow. Then, so all this I discussed last time. One more insight he gave. Tang vidya, dukkha Sanyoga yoga viyogam yoga sangeetam. What a phrase. He uses the word yoga in so many ways. He says, what is yoga? Yoga is dukkha Sanyoga yoga viyogam. It is the, the disconnection of the connection with, um, with sorrow. If you translate yoga as union. So what is union? Union is the disunion with the union with sorrow. Yoga Sangeetam, Dukkha yoga Vyogam. It's a play on words. Um, It will not affect you. You can say like Sri Ramakrishna, when he was asked, are you suffering from cancer? And his very interesting reply was, first he said, yes, it hurts. then Then the questioner said, but sir i see i see that you are in in bliss and he said oh the rascal has found me out which means is it true that there is pain yes is it true that uh, you, he says i cannot eat is it true was he play acting no all that is true is it true that at a deeper level it's perfectly all right from for him from that, there's a perspective in him which from which perspective he says it's fine i'm actually in joy whatever happens yes The, the philosopher Arindam Chakravati told me about his guru, who was a great Vaishnava uh, teacher, Sitaram Das Karnath, in the early 20th century, um, mid 20th century. So he said he has himself seen in the last days of the saint, who by the way is not a non-dualist, he is an out and out devotee of Krishna. So when they would treat him for bed sores and tumor and all in it, it would hurt. He would he would squeal in laughter and pain at the same time. And you know, he, he would say, It hurts. And they would say, Oh, the delight of it all. <laughs> the fun and the delight of it all. It's paradoxical. He sees the whole thing as a marvelous play, and it hurts, it still hurts. Disease hurts, bed sores hurt. And the tumor that's killing you is it hurts? All right. Then moving on. Number 24. Sankalpa Prabhavan Kaman Tyaktwa Sarvana Sheshata Manasaiva Indriya Gramam Vini Samantata. Having completely renounced all desires born of fancy. Controlling well the senses from all sides by the mind alone. Yoga should be practiced. So, some more advanced advice for meditators. Basic stuff is long over. You sit in this way, you breathe in this way and so on. Uh, what kind of place you have to, you need for meditation? What is the seat should be like? How, what is the posture? All those things you have spoken about. But now advanced stuff. So, one thing about calming the mind, Um, indriya-gramam-viniyamya, samantata, grama means collection, collection of the senses, sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch, so all of these, the five senses should be withdrawn from their objects. Don't try to see anything, don't try to hear anything and do not smell or taste or touch anything. Um, now you can close your eyes, but how do you, you can even plug your ears, but how do you f- prevent your skin from feeling the cold or the heat? How do you prevent your nose or, you know, some taste, sense of taste? So all of those things are active all the time. So what is meant here? The real meaning of withdrawing the senses is mentally. So mentally withdraw the senses, but you turn the mind inwards. What does that mean? We have all noticed it. Suppose you are focused on a book. So people come and go. There are sounds in the background. You notice After some time you realize you haven't noticed it. Um, I've seen kids back in India. And school kids. So focused on the cricket match on the TV. It's hot and sweaty. And there are mosquitoes. And nothing to them. Now you tell them. Alright, enough of this sit down and study and immediately how can we study it's too hot to study and these mosquitoes and it's so sweaty and i'm hungry none of that matter when you're watching the cricket match now, what's going on there it's because the mind is so focused on it there's so much interest that automatically the mind gets focused all the other sensory inputs don't matter they don't break your concentration similarly with the mind focused on the object of meditation, whatever your practice is, it could be the breath, it could be the mantra, it could be a deity visualization or specifically in this case the nature of the self. Focused on that, turned inwards from the senses. So, you lose interest in the objects of the senses. How do you do that? Sankalpa Prabhavan Kamans Jatva Sarvan So, this is uncompromising. He says by giving up our desires. And he says, How do you do that? He says, These desires are born of our, um, there's no word, for, specific word for that, sankalpa. Sankalpa, it, he is translated as fancies. It's just the conceptions of niceness. In, there's a technical word for it in Advaita called Shobhana Adhyasa, that which is absolutely of no use to you, ultimately of no good to you, yet we think it's nice. Uh, i like it it's necessary for me or the opposite it's awful i can't bear it it's terrible in both these cases the mind will run rush out to that and the senses will now be utilized to direct its attention to those things and mind will become externalized meditation is not possible so sankalpa is that root that root now blossoms out into kama kama means desires at this stage, it is now, I got to have it. I have to see this. I have to taste that food. I have to meet this celebrity or something like that. And all of these things, uh, they are now in the form of desire, very difficult to control. At that level, it's very difficult to control. So he says at the level, at the level of the root itself, you squash it. It's easier at that level. Sankalpa, Pravan, Kaman. Sarvan, all of them, don't keep remnants so spiritual practitioners we make the mistake of keeping remnants all the obviously gross stuff it's um, it's rooted out but a little bit of harmless thing the thing is the little bit of harmless uh, indulgence now the mind will grab on to that itself as its lifeline anything to save itself from meditation so <laughs> i remember once i was very sick and uh, the hospital, our our monastery hospital there. So they had Reader's Digest. They had this person who would go around to the patients every week with books and things that I would read. I would have I borrowed Reader's Digest, old Reader's Digest to read. I thought it was sort of innocent and harmless. Well, we had this strict old monk who was also sick in the nearby bed, and once he was telling me uh, that. Um, um, you know, these days it's, it's, um, it's scandalous. I've seen monks wasting their time. As a, what, what are you doing? What are you reading? Is it something uh, enlightening? Is it something nourishing? No, they are reading readers' digest. Would you think? Would you believe it? And I had readers' digest under my pillow. So I, I desperately leaned back on the pillow, hoping that he wouldn't notice. And I was like, you don't say really read us digest. But there's a point there. Sarvan Asheshata without any remainder whatsoever. And Asheshata without any remainder, but also it means at the subtle levels, also, not just the gross ones, the desires, but the subtle levels also you give up. You see it's difficult. No, it's not difficult. Um, your satisfaction comes from the object of meditation from that's why bhakti is so powerful bhakti is basically connected to desire so i love my krishna my rama krishna or my durga this is durga puja it's the uh, final day today is the conclusion of the durga puja so i love my divine mother so much i don't want anything else when you when you have that kind of love you, you it, it would be intolerable to think of spend time with something that is not the object of your love so Vijayadashami on this day, the image of Durga is immersed. Um, so we have, I think it was Mathur Babu. Who was it? Or Girish Babu. Um, in Sri Ramakrishna's uh, gospel, it's there. At the end of the Durga puja, he is so overcome. He doesn't want to let the image go. The, the whole puja is that you worship the Divine Mother. The image is just the... Uh, just the locus, the basis of your worship, and so to complete the cycle, you immerse it back in the in the Ganga. It goes. It had come from the unmanifest to the manifest. It goes back to the unmanifest. But the heart doesn't want that. Here is my mother. She is here. I'm not going to throw her into the <laughs> river, and so so he's weeping uncontrollably. What is that? And that that is love, and there's love for God. So at that point none of the worldly pleasures the company of friends or other indulgences would make any sense it, they would be seen as irritants or, or disturbances so asheshata even the subtle ones are given up all right so this is the meaning sankalpa prabhavan kamanta Pyaktva, sarvan asheshata down to the subtlest desires desires give them up um, at the root before they blossom into full-fledged desires. The root is, what is the root? About things in the world, people in the world, places in the world, certain times in our life, um, possessions, um, my personal theories, political convictions, uh, the sports team I, I support. All of these are, are uh, you know, the complexes in our mind, and a lot of emotional baggage is attached to each of them. Um, things I love or hate. So let that go. And you replace it, That the, uh, the mind should flow to the divine, emotions should flow to the divine. In this way, what will happen? The result will be my effort at withdrawing from external engagement. This is meditation, advanced instruction meditation. My effort at withdrawing from external uh, engagement and settling down on the object of meditation, the breath, the deity, the mantra, or ultimately the nature of awareness of awareness, it will be successful. Because the mind is not pushing outwards. If the mind is not pushing outwards, it will not activate the the sensory centers. The senses are like instruments. In fact, in Vedanta, they are called instruments. Karana. Karana means instrument. The mind wants to go outside and picks up certain instruments, like apps. So, here's an instrument, there's an app, a visual app to see, there's an audio, a, a audio app to hear, or a taste, or a smell, um, or a touch. And the mind picks up these and goes out into the world to do its thing. Now, it doesn't want to do that. So, these apps remain um, you know, dormant. So they are not active. They are not pulling your attention outwards. Then, how do you do this? 25, further instruction. Withdrawing thus by degrees um, establishing the mind in the self by the intellect, regulated by concentration one, and sh- one should not think of anything else. So this is the culmination of Yoga, Patanjali Yoga culminating in Samadhi, Savikalpa Samadhi and finally Nirvikalpa Samadhi. or Patanjali's terms, Sampragyata Samadhi culminating in Asamprajñata Samadhi. Remember here, the entire technology of uh, Patanjali Yoga is being borrowed and used by Vedanta. Vedanta may not, use, may not agree with the philosophical conclusions of Patanjali Yoga, but here the technology of Patanjali Yoga, the Ashtanga Yoga, is fully accepted by Vedanta. This is a powerful technology of concentration and focus. So, um, it is now fixed on the Atman. How is it done? First of all, shanay, shanay, slowly, by degrees. This has two meanings. First of all, the direct meaning, it takes time. Patanjali is also clear. It takes time. Uh, systematic um, and consistent practice Over a long period of time, it leads to establishment in yoga. This is one of the sutras of Patanjali. Um, One should not be like Hanuman, who jumped over the sea to go to Lanka, you know, from going from India to Sri Lanka. Now, we are not, most of us are not cut out that way. You know, even Rama had to build a bridge to walk from uh, India to Sri Lanka. So Uh, We have to build that bridge and walk slowly, systematically. One should not be. In Hindi, they say stubborn, foolishly stubborn, let's say. uh, Hata means foolishly stubborn. By force. One should not do that. There is a system to approach it because these are very delicate things. It's it's, um, subtler than the body, subtler than the prana, uh, it's, it's mind, it's emotion, it's intellect and beyond that. Therefore, you're dealing with very subtle uh, levels of your personality. You can't force it. You can't force enlightenment. You can force God and then God can give you the enlightenment, but uh, you yourself cannot force Samadhi, for example. If, if you force it, that itself uh, foils the attempt at Samadhi. Effort can take you to meditation. It can take you to Savikalpa Samadhi also. But beyond that, Nirvikalpa Samadhi is not effort. It's not an effort of the will. If you do that, and then the, you'll slip away from Samadhi because that's also a movement of the mind. Um, so here, I don't know if we have time. I can tell you the story. I've told this earlier also. It's such a moving story, let me tell you. The story about the grace of the guru, the importance of um, systematic spiritual practice, but yet also the beauty of sincerity, the the restlessness of the heart for God. So all these things are there in the story. So this story I heard from uh, Swami Ramananda Saraswati. He was a traditional monk in the north of India. He passed away several years ago. I mean, not several years ago, I think less than a decade ago. But he was regarded as a highly evolved spiritual soul. He was a non-dualist, but very syncretic in the sense that uh, he accepted devotion fully. He was a meditator, a Patanjali yogi. And also he he was very fond of Kashmiri Shaivism. He even taught, studied and taught those texts. So very typically hindu uh, open to all streams of thought and all but fundamentally he was his his uh, home tradition was advaita vedanta i met him a few times so once he told this story about the grace of the guru but the story has so many other aspects um so the story goes like this uh, he had been told he wanted to become a monk his guru told him many many decades ago when he was a young student to go back to Banaras and finish his studies. So he went back to Banaras and he was a brahmachari studying at a traditional Sanskrit school. So I'm talking about Ramananda Saraswati. This brahmachari uh, studying at a traditional Sanskrit school. And um, one day he came across a little book. This book was about a Krishna Bhakta, a boy who was the devotee of Krishna. So just his life story. So the Swami said, I read the book. And the story goes like this. There was a little boy in uh, Vrindavan, the place of Krishna. And this boy grew up like everybody does in Vrindavan, with stories of Krishna. And he was so devoted to Krishna. He thought, I want to see Krishna. Because everybody says, you can see Krishna in Vrindavan. So he a little boy. He believed it. And so he went to a to a tree just outside their village and he sat down there. I've heard that there is a marker near the tree now. Anyway, he sat down there and he started calling on Krishna. He wouldn't eat. He wouldn't go back home. He wouldn't eat. At first, it, people found it a curiosity and uh, they thought it was a nice little boy and to be so devoted to Krishna. But as the day went on and the next day he wouldn't come home His parents got worried. The villagers got worried. They tried to persuade him in all ways to come back home to eat something. He said, no, I have to see Krishna. I will not eat until I see Krishna. So, after two or three days, and already as it happens in India, immediately crowds start collecting. Anything to do with God, it will immediately attract people, especially in a place like Vrindavan. So, people started visiting this little boy who was calling on Krishna and He was getting weaker day by day, and so finally, the villagers went to this uh, monk who lived nearby uh, in Vrindavan. Yes, in Vrindavan. So, his name uh, they used to call him Oriya Baba, the monk from Orissa. He was a very highly regarded monk in those days, a non dualist. So, they went and uh, they told him about this little boy. It was already, I think, a week. Since the boy had eaten. So they told him and they said, We are all very worried. He won't listen to any of us. And so this monk said, I'll go and talk to him. And he went and he found the little boy already very weak under the little tree, under the tree and calling on Krishna. And he said, I'm very pleased with you, my boy. This is wonderful that you have so much devotion, but this is not the way. Uh, There is a way to do this. There is a whole body of knowledge, a system in which one can practice and finally, um, you know, realize God. You are a fit aspirant. You are a a real seeker of God. I can see that. And I will teach you. I will make you my disciple and I will teach you. Which was a very great honor because um, that Swami was, I mean, there's so many people who wanted to become his disciples. And here is himself offering that little boy of all people that I'll accept you as a disciple. But my condition is you must eat now must at least drink something and eat something now. Uh, in Hindi, he said, I say, Hata means, so by force, by stubbornness. There is a way to do this. The boy said that, all right, I will, uh, I'll uh, uh, listen to you, but tomorrow. Come tomorrow, I'll break my fast and I will drink fruit juice from your hands. So everybody was relieved and they went back home. That night, suddenly this monk, this old monk, he woke up in his ashram, you know, uneasily. There was something, uh, he felt uneasy. At the first break of light in dawn, he ran, he literally ran back to that tree outside that little village, and he found that the little boy was dead. Uh, he, he had passed. And uh, that night, he had a vision, why he was uneasy? He told people later. This monk told other people that last night I had a I had a dream or a vision that a divine being, the divine, you know, like they say ratha, like a divine chariot, it came down from the abode of Krishna from from Vaikunta, and uh, it landed in front of the boy, and it the child got on the on this celestial chariot or something, and it disappeared back into the realms it had come from. So, that was the story. Now, this monk who told us the story, uh, Swami Ramanda Saraswati, he said, I was so moved by this um, little boy story that uh, I decided, what am I doing? All this study, Sanskrit, grammar, and all that, all this is I don't want to do all this. I, I want to uh, realize God. And so, I'm going to go away to Vrindavan and search for Krishna, or I'll die in the attempt. And he thought, but, but I should tell my guru because uh, the old man told me to study. So he goes back to his guru's ashram and tells the guru, I'm sorry, I can't keep my word. I'm not going to complete my studies. And I understand if you're not going to accept me as your disciple, but I want to, this is the thing. I read this story and I want to see Krishna and I'm going to go to Vrindavan and spend the rest of my life as long as I live looking for Krishna. I'm searching for God. The guru said, same thing, you know, this is not the way, there's a, there's a way to do it. And uh, don't be emotional. And then he said, I was young. I was emotional. And I said, no. If that boy could do it, I'll do it too. I'd I'd rather die than you know, just follow this old method of you know study and, and uh, becoming a monk and all of these, these old systems. I'll just go straight to God. And I'm willing to die. And he, he said, I walked away. I ignored what my guru told me. And I walked away. I was so young and charged with emotion and enthusiastic and he says there were nearly there was you know like it was his eyes were moist he said that look at the grace of that old man my guru he started walking behind me and i scolded him what are you doing i just came here to tell you that i won't be i won't follow your instructions i'm going to go away to vindavan you don't have to come with me you have a whole ashram um, you go back and stay there i don't want you to come with me the Guru said, you can't stop me. I can't stop you from going to Vindavan, but you can't stop me from following you. I will go with you. And so they went together to Vrindavan and they stayed there. And he says, Ramanda Saraswati told us, that we stayed there for, uh, I would go with a little cottage, we stayed there. In the morning I would leave and I would wander around the temple, the beautiful temples of Krishna. They are very ancient ones with, with an amazing atmosphere. So he said, I would go from temple to temple. I became like a madman. I would go there, pray, meditate, weep, and I would, you know, I don't know where I was like I was possessed by a storm. And the evening, I would, uh, and the dark descended. Temples would be closed. I would come back to that little hut, uh, exhausted, and my guru, the old man, he would be waiting there with a piece of bread he had begged from you know people around, and then he would share it with me, and we would eat. And my guru took out this book. Uh, Tripura Rahasya, which is a Vedantic Tantric text and very non-dualistic, not very devotional at all. And he said, read this and I would get irritated and she said, I don't want to read this. I don't feel like reading such things. said, no, read it, just read it to me. And so I would read it one chapter a day and the next day would go like that. I would wander from place to place like of this mad person, Um, of course. I didn't get to see Krishna anywhere. Uh, and then come back. And the same thing would be repeated. That book has 30 chapters. 30 days passed. 30 chapters were over. My madness was calmed. Came to my senses. And my guru said, let's go back. And we we went back. And he said, go back to your studies. Finish your studies and come back. And he said, I did that. And I came back and I became a monk later on. And that's a long story. So and you know, that was he said, I think, like 60 years ago. So it's a beautiful story, really. And it's a story of that little boy and this intense love of God. And he found his reward. In spite of being non-methodical, non-traditional, without any system, without any Vedanta, Vedanta classes, just by sheer love of God, uh, he found his, uh, he found God. But also the importance of Guru and the importance of uh, Vedanta, all these vast systems of knowledge which have, we have developed over millennia, not just centuries, millennia, people have walked on this path. It is a path. So have patience and walk on this path. Krishna says, shanei, shanei, slowly, slowly, uh, systematically, slowly, step by step, don't jump. Um, also, another interpretation would of this would be, what else was I going to tell you? So, yeah, systematically, slowly, but consistently, not um, lazily. I'm take, Krishna told me to take it slow, so I'm taking it slow. I meditate once a week and go to a class uh, twice a week. That's it. Rest of the time, nothing. I'm taking it slow. Won't work that way. Sri Ramakrishna said uh, he did not like this kind of lack of enthusiasm. So enthusiasm, that's that's the difficult part of it. And yet systematic. Krishna later will say that's a sign of a sattvic mind. Dhriti utsa and Endowed with enthusiasm and patience. You have people who are very enthusiastic but they are enthusiastic about different things each day. Something today, something tomorrow. There are people who are patient and methodical and they actually make more progress but they lack that fire sometimes. They sometimes become mechanical. So a sattvic mind is fresh. I have seen such people, old monks, but such fresh minds, childlike, fresh minds. They are looking at everything with the eyes of of a child. So, that is, freshness is there, enthusiasm is there, and yet systematic, disciplined. Shane, shane, slowly, slowly, systematically. Now, the other meaning would be that... uh, move from the, uh, from the obvious to the not-so-obvious, from the physical to the subtle. So notice um, how the pancha-kosha-viveka, for example, proceeds, methodology used in Vedanta. I am pure consciousness, witness consciousness. Wait a minute, not so fast. Start with what is most obvious, what you're most confident of. It's like mounting the staircase. You don't hop, skip and jump, you'll fall if you do that. You put your foot on the first step and maintain your balance there, I mean, you study steady there before you go to the next step and so on, like climbing a mountain, for example. You're sure of your foothold and then you proceed further. So start with the most obvious, the physical, the body. Now instead of trying to be aware of awareness, be aware of the body. We are often not aware of the body, most of the time we are in our heads, thinking thoughts. So aware of the body, the sensations of the body and so on and so forth. We are full awareness of the body. This be firmly in this step, this is called the food sheet, annamaya. Then systematically, slowly turn your attention to the prana, breath. And why would you do that? There are these understandings that the body is changing, I am not changing. And the body is an object, I am the experiencer of that object. The body is insentient, I am sentient and so many Arguments are there. I'm not going to that, but the point here is from the physical body, you go to something subtler. Not totally subtle, it is just the breath. The breath is also physical, but more subtle than the body. The in breath and the out breath. That is the tip of the iceberg. The whole iceberg is prana, the physiological processes keeping this body alive. Stay there for some time. Be fully aware of that. Then go to something more subtle, which is the mind. Thoughts, ideas, memories, emotions, desires. Be aware of what's going on in the mind. Pretty subtle level already. Then go even more subtle. The understanding itself. The whole conceptual structure we have. The knowledge of I am this. That is the intellect. Then go further behind that. Beyond that, if you push further, you will reach a very subtle blankness. And notice then, from there you go to the awareness which was illumining all of these. So instead of jumping to, I am the awareness and I am the witness of everything, body, shanir, slowly, slowly, breath. So at each step we have a firm foothold. You are confident of each step. You're not mixed up. You have not slipped away into thinking at some point. You are just looking at, every step is real to you. Body is obviously real. Breath is real. Thinking is real. And it goes from the mind, the attention becomes more subtle and more refined. The intellect, that should be clear and real. What, what are you talking about? Beyond that, pushing beyond that, full awareness and yet blankness, Ob, object, there's no object to be aware of. And from there to awareness of awareness. Shanai, shanai. Uparamit, withdraw. Seize. Literally, Uparamana means seizing, cessation. Seize. And then, and hold on, buddhya, by understanding. Why not the body? I am attending to the body, you see, now withdraw to the uh, to the breath. Why? Understanding why I cannot be the body. Why I am something other than the body. And understanding and the quest, I am looking for myself, the reality. Self with capital S. Why not the breath? Why not mind? We generally, without question, all of us, we tend to think of ourselves as thinking beings. So why not the mind? See, the same arguments apply and so on. So buddhya, by understanding, by Vedant, understanding means the understanding saturated by Vedantic um, teaching, which is where all Gita, Upanishad, Rigdhrishya, Vivek, Aparokshana, Bhuti, all these classes come in. It, it saturates our understanding with this way of thinking. This helps you in meditation, Vedantic meditation. Driti Grihitaya. Um, Driti here means focus or concentration. So, not only understanding, maintain the focus. Don't slip away into irrelevancies. Don't flow outward into the world again. Having done this, finally you will be aware of awareness, really, not as a concept, not unstably also. Atma Sanstham. Establish yourself in awareness or the awareness self. Then don't think anything else. That means don't slip back into thinking again. Stay there in that luminosity. So these are pretty advanced instructions actually. I was just looking at this book, uh, Alan Wallace, uh, who writes about Buddhist meditation he's a philosopher at the University of Santa Barbara, I think, uh, UCSP. So, he's written a book called Meditations of a Buddhist Skeptic. So, there he has very interesting two chapters. I really haven't gone through it yet. I'm looking forward to it. So, these techniques from an Indian perspective and a Tibetan perspective. The original Buddhist techniques were, uh, were in India and what, what were the techniques and then how they were further refined in Tibet. So, Then I think we are out of time almost. All right, we'll just leave it here. Let me look at the comments. There are many comments here. Awareness of awareness also comes and goes. Yeah, so the attention to awareness comes and goes. Fine. But notice, so Shweta is saying this. The awareness that I am Shweta, you may think about it, you may not think about it. But at no point do you think that I am not Shweta. If I am not thinking that I am Shweta, do I stop being Shweta? No. Whether I think about it or I do not think about it, I am Sarva Priyananda. It seems to be obvious to me. This is knowledge, jnana. When I attend to being Sarvapriyananda, that is awareness of being sarvapranaanta. So the knowledge will tell you that I am awareness, whether I attend to it or not. Now here, this is because chapter chapter is on meditation, so you are attending to it. You are trying to be aware of of that I am awareness. So this is the whole attempt. Um, unless we do this, it will not uh, result in full blown enlightenment. But this is also an attempt. That's why it can be done, and it can be undone, it can be not done. I'm translating Shankaracharya's comment. It can be done, it may not be done, it may be done in a different way. That's the nature of meditation, Shankaracharya says. Garav Mittal says, Does it mean that when this mind in waking state recognizes that I am Brahman that this recognition will carry over to the states like dream state, deep sleep and after death? Yes. I understand that I am awareness is always true. But this recognition is in the mind. So theoretically, mind can lose it, having realized it as gaining or losing both are unreal. True. But once ignorance is removed, it will never come back again. Notice One thing that that persists even in dream state is uh, that you're aware. You're aware of things happening in the dream state. When it permeates every moment of your existence in the waking state, no matter what you are happening in the waking state. Similarly, whatever your dream may be, it will permeate your dream state. And in the deep sleep, it's only that in the deep sleep, you will not be thinking that I am awareness of deep sleep. In that case, you are not in deep sleep. But the awareness is, of course, always there. More precisely, it's no longer important after that. This is what uh, Vedanta Sara, we did in Vedanta Sara, that breakthrough, that enlightenment, which is called in Vedanta Sara, Brahmakara Vritti. Or Advaita Vedanta, it's called Brahmakara Vritti. The question was raised, if you remember in Vedanta Sara, after that Vritti, after that moment of enlightenment, does that enlightenment flash, does it persist or not? And the answer was, no, it doesn't. It it also becomes part of the world of appearance. And you are that that Brahman in which waking, dreaming, deep sleep come and go. So you are no longer dependent upon the waking mind to tell you, you are awareness, you are Brahman. You are no longer dependent upon this mind here in the waking state, I am Brahman. No. The mind is dependent upon you. So whenever the mind functions, it will be surcharged with the awareness and the awareness of awareness you know that you are that awareness brinda says being aware of awareness is the difference between samadhi and sushupti yes rodrigo says how do you withdraw the mind from the gravitational pull Um, rodrigo would you clarify what gravitational pull Uh, when he unmutes we'll see patrick says sankalpa seen translated as a resolve or firm decision this is a different meaning yes so firm decision or sankalpa is when you make up your mind to do something in the ritualistic sense when you start a puja you take a sankalpa that i am going to do this worship for this purpose it could be a worldly purpose or it could just be for the blessings of god for my spiritual life that's called a sankalpa which is in the sense of a resolve or firm decision here the word Sankalpa is, uh, refers to the root stage which finally um, sort of develops into a desire. All our judgments about the world, uh, they start off as these Sankalpas. Jayashri says, how does this Sankalpa differ from the Sankalpa taken during the Puja? Yes, that's exactly what I talked about. The Sankalpa during a Puja is a result. I do this Puja uh, worship of say Ganesha or Durga. For the welfare of humanity. This is a sankalpa. And I start the activity. But this sankalpa is uh, is a subtle form. of Which ultimately becomes a desire. Parul says. The state of calm or bliss. I experience in meditation on a particular day. Sometimes becomes the benchmark on another. How do I press my reset button? Don't bother about all of that. Uh, I mean, let it be. The memory of that calmness. It will be there in your mind. It's not a bad thing. Rick says the self realizes the self, but it does so in the context of a human life for which a gross and subtle body are necessary. Correct. Yes, correct. We retire and reach the threshold of enlightenment through the intellect, a function of the subtle body. Again, correct. If the gross body is damaged or killed, is it the intellect by which self-realization is... If the gross body is damaged or killed, is it the intellect by which self-realization is not lost? Um, As I said, in the path of knowledge, ignorance the whole framework is that ignorance is stopping us from realizing what we are. So, ignorance is overcome by knowledge. And the instrument of knowledge which we have ultimately is the intellect. So, it is used um, for gaining that enlightenment. But once you realize what you are, you also realize in what sense you are not dependent on the physical body or the subtle body then it does not, does not matter anymore. Um, I mean, if the screen, which had forgotten itself, as identifying itself as a character in the movie, suddenly realizes I'm a screen, using the character to a certain extent, suddenly it, it makes that shift. After that, whatever happens to that character doesn't matter. It's, uh, I realize I'm not only that character, I'm all characters. And ultimately, none of them. There are accounts of enlightened beings still functioning on some higher plane after death. Is that by virtue of the finest level of intellect that purified subtle body as a whole or what? Yes, they continue to be sentient beings. If they continue to be personal beings for whatever reason, Sri Ramakrishna would say that depends on the will of God. After enlightenment also, some retain their personality. Um, And what do you mean by retaining personality? Even when the physical body goes, subtle body persists. Rodrigo says, on Ramana Saraswati, the guru of Professor Saraswati, Timal No, this is a different Ramananda Saraswati. Shweta says, what was the name of the book you mentioned? Oh, yeah, Rodrigo has mentioned it. Meditations of a Buddhist Skeptic, Manifesto for Mind Sciences and Contemplative Practice. It's one of his recent books. But he has many, many good books on uh, Buddhist meditation. Rodrigo says, I mean awareness of gravitation. Mm. I'm still not sure awareness of gravitation. Gravitation is a physical thing, right? I should think about that. Srinivas Raju says, can we say aware of awareness is generally at Chidavasa level before realization of the absolute or pure uh, Consciousness. Can we say awareness of awareness is generally at Chidavasa level? Awareness of awareness as a practice, which Krishna is mentioning, is definitely being done by the mind, and which means chidavasa is there, the reflected consciousness. But the whole point is it will it will point you out to something beyond the mind and the reflected consciousness. Um, So it, so, this is a practice. This is a part of the meditation, which is part of the sixth chapter, which is being taught. Krishna is teaching you some advanced level of meditation here. But that's not the goal. The goal is the Atman itself, which is there, which has to be revealed. Uh, once it's revealed, all of this becomes immaterial. Rick says, a question from Alpana. One gets such waves when where one doesn't want to continue with sadhana. What should one do? given to stopping the practices so are there for some time, come back or force oneself to continue a practice without power. It depends. There's a certain amount of discipline which has to be mentioned, uh, maintained, but if the reaction is so much, they don't like it and it becomes mechanical, or one is feeling upset, the beauty of spiritual life is there's such a variety of practices available to us. Stop meditating for some time. Read something uh, you know, inspiring. It could be it could be philosophical, it could be devotional, it could be the lives of um, saints. Lives are particularly inspiring and soothing. Um, listen to devotional music or get up and do something like a service activity or something or some secular activity also, but mentally offer it to God. So such a variety of practices are possible. I'll just take a walk. <laughs> Oh, and at all times, please realize that these reactions, sometimes they are so powerful, they are uncontrollable. But they are reactions of the mind. You are perfectly alright. Keep that in mind. And That also you have to keep it in mind. <laughs> but you, the self, the witness of these reactions, you are perfectly alright, even when the mind is throwing up a storm. The vast sky is still the vast sky, even if a thunderstorm is going on. Oh, shanti 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 hari hi om tat shri Ramakrishna krishna rup